Our scripture reading today is Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Please pray with me. Father, may this reading of your word and Kyle's exposition of your word cause us to fix our thoughts more steadily on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he told him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi hosted a great banquet for Jesus at his house. A large crowd of tax collectors was there, along with others who were eating with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes complained to Jesus' disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Sometime after the scandal with Bill Clinton, um, after that was made public, Billy Graham attended a rally to support him. When he was asked why he'd attend such an event, he said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge and my job to love. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. What a witness to Christ's own ministry, to the heart of that. Jesus was many things, as we're learning, but was Jesus a friend of sinner, f- sinners? Friend of sinners was most certainly an insult directed at Jesus in his day, It was a derogatory phrase that Jesus places on the lips of the Pharisees, saying they called him a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of sinners. I'm going to be tackling the last one, a friend of sinners, and I'll let David tackle the other two. (laughs) But um, before I comment on today's title, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, I want to say a few words about friendship. Then I want to say a few words about sinners. So friendship. Friendship is a type of relationship that maps onto our our relational ecology. You might think of of lots of different types of relationships. There's family, there's friends, there's acquaintances, romantic partners, colleagues, there's church folk. Then there are some more distant relationships. There's strangers, there's total strangers. There's enemies, there's frenemies, there are exes. I I learned this word this week. There are situationships. The the list could go on. So when you think about your day-to-day life, most of us have learned to navigate the, the, the world through relationships. We've learned pretty well how to navigate it. Our relational map helps us to move quickly through the grocery store checkout line. Um, It helps us to prioritize our energy for relationships that are more significant. 
Um, one book that I'm, I'm leaning pretty heavily on for parts of this sermon is called Soulmates. And it argues that relationships differ on at least three different levels. Language, conventions, and context. So let me tell you what I mean. So when you think of language, well, consider the language of marriage and contrast that with the language of the workplace. Someone once said that the world out there, you speak to be known, while at home you speak because you are known. When you think of conventions, those things you do, um, again, consider marriage versus the, the commercial relationships. The things you do at work are technical, they're precise, they're, they're negotiated, they're impersonal, they're, they're work. But things in a marriage, they're more fluid. Um, I find myself at, at home often saying, hey, can you uh, grab me that thing over, and, and Lissy will just get it. She'll know what I'm talking about. Um, and then there's recreation, there's eating, there's sharing life. And then there's the difference of context, right? So, so work, there's a workplace, you're an employee. Um, whereas the spouse relationship, it's much, much more intimate. Um, you share personal places together. So as we consider the idea of friendship, we have to admit that today, in our day and age, we think about friendship in pretty sloppy terms. It's usually something intimate, it's personal, it's generally a good thing you want. You think of a best friend, you want transparency and loyalty and honesty. You want support. You want there to be some history there, some depth. You want there to be trust. Um, definitely some insider language, some personalized language, some forgiveness. Um, we tend to sentimentalize friendship and put it in greeting cards, but, but the fact is friendship is a very serious topic and actually very close to the center of what it means to be human, to have friendships. So as we consider friendships, let's also consider the context of Christ-centered Christian relationships and, and, and community, the expectations there, the ground rules, the ecology of relationships. And I think we need to ask, is this the same thing as friendship? It's an important foundation when we say Jesus was a friend of sinners. So can we pull up my first slide? Okay, so, so the book Soulmates, it gives the following definition of friendship. It's exclusive. Not everyone gets an invitation. Let's face it, there's not enough time to be close to everyone. So you focus your limited emotional energy on those with similar interests and those in close proximity. It's preferential. You kind of need to like each other. Our lives are filled with pyramids of preferences from, from best friends forever right at the top to, to total strangers at the bottom. It's reciprocal. It's a two-way street. There's a give and take. Aristotle once said, you can't be friends with a bottle of wine. <laughs> Friendship requires reciprocation. Friends share an equal status. They're on the same level. When you think of the workplace, there are hierarchies. You may have a boss above you, employees below you. Friendship with hierarchy is a contradiction of terms. It's freely chosen. There are no obligations or pressures, no money, no pity. It's self-benefiting. Um, it's even selfish. It's, it's not a one-way street, but it, in a radical way, it is selfish. Civil servants may serve at the pleasure of the president. And friendships exist at the pleasure of the individuals involved. 
In this way, it's dynamic. That's to say friendship can, can die or it can grow. It's unlike a, a parent-child relationship, which is static. It's always the same. Friendship is, a, is in flux. And it's not contingent upon your relationship with Christ. You know, this may be a point of debate, and I hope this isn't the only thing you take away, but arguably, we can be best friends with non-Christians. There's nothing in this definition that precludes that possibility. Friendship re requires direct knowing. This simply means that you can't know a friend in the abstract. You need to know their name. You need to know that some things about them. And finally, there are shared secrets. There's messy language, insider language, ex exclusive knowledge, juicy secrets held between people. Now, I want you to hold this image of friendship in your mind, this exclusive preferential relationship that can grow and fade, filled with shared secrets and made for self-benefit. found a BuzzFeed article this week that's titled, Tell Us the Smallest Reason You Stopped Being Friends with Someone. <laughs> Let me share a few of the gems from that article. The person didn't like Danny DeVito. <laughs> that was a relationship requirement, apparently. She spoiled the end of The Bachelorette for me. They posted too many motivational quotes on Instagram. They killed me on Minecraft. <laughs> they voted for fill in the blank. With that in mind, you know, I need to know, is this, is this what we want in the church? <laughs> is this what you come into church hoping for? Is this what you want your, for your children? Another, another even better question is, is this the relationship model we find in the New Testament? Was this God's vision for his church community? Friendship? Something so fragile it might not withstand a disagreement, an insensitivity, a difference in taste? Something so contingent on nothing but what you're looking for at the time? Is church simply a place to eye up potential pew buddies? Where we simply import the rules of relationships we learned in, in grade school into the relationships around us. I'll submit to you that the, the relationship model for the church is actually fellowship. Something Jesus likens to family, but there are ways that it's wider than family, especially the, the Western nuclear family. So let's pull up the second slide. In contrast to friendship, fellowship is non-exclusive. According to Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Church is connected in the most unlikely ways that Christ himself knits together. It is radically non-preferential. In James 2, we're told, do not show favoritism. In that example, it's forbidden on the basis of wealth in their imperial social system, but you can extend that principle broadly. The call of Christian community is to not prefer certain people. <laughs> it's non-reciprocal. Jesus teaches his followers to love your enemies and to keep no record of wrongs. Fellowship is not based on what you get. And it exists without status. In the New Testament, there's no concern for status. Fellowship benefits from mutual service between siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a divine command. It's an obligation, so I don't like them. It just isn't a reason to abandon fellowship. 
The church is guilty of having its favorites, but there's no choice whatsoever in God's call to fellowship. It's self-giving. You think of the Good Samaritan, love without return. Paul tells the Corinthian church that the Macedonian church, this, this runt little church, the runt of the litter, it was first in giving funds to the, the persecuted church in Jerusalem. Well, if that's what the world saw, a church wanting to give out of its scarcity and poverty, wow. Fellowship is static. And that's not a bad thing. It will never change. It's actually the relationship of eternity. Confronting complete strangers and calling them brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not going to change. It's completely Christ-based. Bonhoeffer talks about Christian fellowship like the petals on a flower. The only way petals relate to one another, the only way that we relate to one another is through Christ. We connect only by the stem which binds us. You take away Christ, you take away the spirit among us, we have nothing. We're just dandelions blowing in the wind. It is abstract. Um, you have billions of brothers and sisters that are across the globe and across time. Go to a church in Italy, you might not understand a word they're saying, but you have fellowship. And finally, there's transparency. There's nothing worse than three or four people in the corner of a church um, telling secrets. Fellowship demands transparency. No secrets, no funny business. If that's what you came looking for, well, your expectations are about to be challenged. When we look at this chart, we see that friendship and fellowship are not only different, they stand in stark contrast to one another. Jesus not only invents this new category of relationship, fellowship, he models it. His friendships bridges this gap into the category of fellowship. So uh, I want you to bear that in mind. As I continue this sermon and use that phrase, Jesus, friend of sinners, it's, it's more nuanced than, than just the, the friendships that fit in this first category. There's a bridge. And before moving on, I want to offer a word of caution. Friendship is important. Um, many argue that Jesus had an inner circle. But as a, as a Christian community, fellowship always trumps friendship. Friend, uh, fellowship is the higher call for a Christian community. Whether we're conscious of it or not, we create a culture in the church which fosters certain patterns of relating to one another. And that's the reason we need small groups, um, so that we can manage our human tendency toward cliques and exclusion. I mean, what is a clique? It's just friendships that you're not a part of. And who gets excluded? I mean, we've all been on the inside or the outside of, of cliques, and it's the, the cultural norm to which we, we gravitate. But fellowship is the higher call for the Christian community. The reason we come together is nothing to do with friendship. Well, it's the Spirit of God who draws us. Now, if what we mean to say when we say that Jesus is a friend of sinners is that Jesus went into the house of sinners to dine in fellowship, well, that's true. <laughs> the phrase comes later in Luke chapter 7, 31 to 34, and, and I think it's important to share that context because this is actually a title on the lips of Jesus' critics. Jesus went, went on to say, so this is 
Luke 7, 31 to 34, Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is meant to be a burn. This is meant to be an insult. The Pharisees criticized Jesus for spending time with outcasts, the socially unacceptable people, calling him a friend of sinners, for entering into the homes of people like Matthew or Levi. Levi is Matthew. Um, in our passage, Pharisees and scribes who took issue with Jesus um, they ask his disciples in verse 30, why does Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know, let me say a word before I go any further about sinners. Um, tax collectors and sin sinners are they're an interesting pairing of people here. The sinners in ancient Judaism were people that failed the duty of the law because they committed a crime against the law. A lot of times this category affected whole groups of people and sometimes whole, whole sectors of people um, because their work prevented them from obeying the law, fulfilling some duty in the law. People like boatsmen and shepherds. Shepherds can't rest on the Sabbath or their sheep would all run away. Nor could the poor who had to work on the Sabbath to survive. Leather makers and butchers handled impure things according to the law. Even people who could not fulfill the requirements of the law because of sickness and poverty, they were put into this category of sinners. Now, now it's, it's joined with tax collectors here. Tax collectors, when we think of tax collectors, we often think of rich people that are working as agents for the Roman Empire. I mean, some were, but, but there were poor tax collectors as well who worked as part-time employees under uh, these direct contractors. I mean, can you imagine the line at the DMV if only one person was working the desk? Or can you imagine if TurboTax was just a guy? <laughs> the, the, the society at the time considered both rich and poor as tax collectors, talones. And they were alienated by their society, by the landowners, the merchants, the ruling class, but especially the nationalists. They weren't sinners in that they, they weren't breaking commands, but they were seen as people that betrayed God's community, God's people. So when the Bible uses this word tax collectors, um, or it, the word sinners, excuse me, I mean, it's, it's not talking about people who mull around in dive bars or people that rob and murder people, kidnappers, terrorists, though, though truly anyone who finds repentance will find mercy in Christ. Uh, this is just the Pharisee's term for people who are not fulfilling their duty to the law. And as a result, sinners are situated outside of God's holy community. They don't participate in the temple practice, its worship, its festivals, its sacrifices. And, and in that way, it's connected to the tax collectors because a lot of times they also did not participate in those things for so, social reasons. So when we, we come back to this title now of, of Jesus, friend of sinners, this title that was intended as an insult by the Pharisees against Jesus, we have to admit that the shoe only partially fits. 
Jesus spent time with sinners, not to join their sinful ways, not to allow himself to be radically changed, as friends and friendships do, but to extend to them an invitation to be forgiven and to sin no more. If the temple is inaccessible to certain groups of people, well, it's in God's heart to bring the temple to them. Truly, Jesus, as the incarnate God, brought with him everything that the temple had in terms of God's presence, because God's grace is available to those that culture excludes. Jesus is a friend of sinners, is a way of saying God loves the outcast. God loves the outcast. But was this friendship? Some say that a friendship with an agenda is no friendship at all. Jesus says in verse 31 of this passage, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to, reten- uh, to repentance. Now I submit to you, that's an agenda. That is an agenda. A, a patient-doctor relationship is not a reciprocal relationship. It has a profound power differential. You don't go to the doctor for a good chat. You go to the doctor to expose your problems and get one-way help. And today, you also pay them a bunch of money. Jesus invites sinners into the fellowship of the church, but in his invitation to fellowship, he never ceases to be Lord. Let me say that again. Jesus invites sinners into the fellowship of the church, uh, but in his invitation to fellowship, he never ceases to be Lord. Fellowship is seen in the level of intimacy that Jesus wants to have with you. We say Jesus is a friend of sinners because Jesus loves you. That's more than a doctor can say. In this way, we see that Billy Graham, you and I, we have a more straightforward job as Christians. We can say, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. But Jesus, as both God and friend, it's his job to judge and to love. What we're learning in this exercise as we look at Jesus' titles is that you can describe God in a lot of different ways. Because his aim is to set all things right. And everything needs to be set right. Not simply one aspect of your or my life. Not simply some part of this world. Jesus' mission is extensive. And his role on earth is multifaceted. So yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners. And in this way, he wants you to know that the intimacy that he wants to share with you is akin to the, the intimacy of friendship. God loves you how much? I mean, in Romans, we read that that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? God loves us that much. While we were still sinners, he died for us. God's forgiveness and his love is a dynamic reality that walks with us. It's not just some past thing for some past sin. No, God loves us. God loves you. God is a friend to sinners. God loves the outcast. As we move to close, I want you to consider the two responses in in the groups shown in the passage today. Um, In learning of Jesus befriending sinners, the religious leaders became critical of Jesus. However, when Matthew learned this, he threw a party. (laughs) One possible response like the Pharisees, is consternation, perhaps even indignation, that God would choose to save certain people. And then there's a response of joy, a response of 
come and see, and let, let my friends be your friends. I mean, do you notice in this passage how Matthew invites his tax collector friends along? Join in the fellowship of the church. These are two very different responses, which may have something to do with where we situate ourselves in relation to Jesus' ministry of friendship with sinners. Sinners who know they're sinners take joy in Jesus' friendship when they know they don't deserve it, didn't earn it, and can't earn it. Those blind to their own need, they scoff, they reject, they dismiss, and they experience rage when they see what looks like Jesus' preferential treatment of sinners. Those who experience Jesus' redemptive friendship take joy, and they want their friends to be friends with their friend. <laughs> Those who fall into a pattern of works righteousness may become angry when they see criminals on the cross make deathbed confessions, when they see that Jesus enters the shadowlands of our society, when they see Jesus sending his friends into the shadowlands to reach those who wouldn't or couldn't step foot in a place like a Presbyterian church. Matthew said, even me? The Pharisee said, even him? Church, Jesus will surprise you, whose table you'll find him sitting at, and who's invited to dine at his table. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and this is good news to you and to me. But the question we have this morning can we with joy long for our friends to become his friends? And can we with humility pursue fellowship over friendship in the church? Those are two big questions. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love the outcast. I thank you that you love us so much that even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that you show your love for us by sending Christ. We pray that you would stir our hearts um, to share this friendship, this fellowship we have with Christ, with those in the church, with our friends. And I pray that you would help us pursue fellowship. For the sake of your church, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.